Voice of Glittering Delights! And here, your host, Dandre Leyland. Now I know what you're thinking. Did I fire six bullets or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I kind of lost count myself. But being as this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and can blow your head clean off, you got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Eastwood's most iconic roles, that of San Francisco cop Dirty Harry Callahan, nearly never came to pass. Numerous actors, from Robert Mitchum to Steve McQueen to John Wayne, were approached before the producers finally settled on Frank Sinatra as the star and selected Irvin Kirshner as director. When that too fell apart, Paul Newman was approached, but felt the part was allegedly too right-wing for him, whatever that may mean, and suggested it may be perfect for Clint Eastwood. Eastwood was, at that time, at a turning point in his career. He'd segued his success from TV western Rawhide into Sergei Leone's Dollars trilogy, and a few other otas, such as Hang'em High, but with the popularity of westerns on the way, he was looking for parts away from the Stetson, with mixed success. Coogan's Bluff was a contemporary western, placing Eastwood's throwback cop in a modern setting. Paint Your Wagon and Two Mules for Sister Sarah were comedies, albeit still firmly in the western genre. Kelly's Heroes and Were Eagles Durr were war pictures, entertaining but not terribly different, and in any case, war pictures were dying as quickly as westerns. Eastwood, however, had two irons in the fire at this point. His directorial debut, Play Misty for Me, was a satisfying, if overlong, psychological drama about an obsessed girlfriend that demonstrated that Eastwood saw his career developing behind the camera. The other high point was The Beguiled, directed by Don Siegel, and concerning a civil war vet who runs afoul of a convent. The Beguiled, the strangest movie in the Eastwood canon, and I think one of his best, does what later Eastwood movies would revel in taking the popular image of him and twisting it to make the audience uncomfortable. At the time he was asked to read the script for Dirty Harry, Eastwood was still in post-production on Misty. After reading not only the original draft but all the subsequent rewrites, Eastwood decided to return to the first draft, feeling that the later amendments lost the point and feel of the story. This is another indicator of how Eastwood's career would go, with him being a director who tends to shoot the script he buys, as opposed to having it be overly rewritten. It may have taken him 12 years in between buying Unforgiven and shooting it, but the film he made was the script he'd bought 12 years earlier. 
Anyway, Eastwood agreed to take the role if Don Siegel would direct. With the picture in turnaround hell, Warner Brothers happily acquiesced to all of Eastwood's demands, and cameras rolled on Dirty Harry immediately following Eastwood completing his work on Misty. What followed was one of those moments of alchemy that happens very occasionally in movie making. A movie that captured a moment in time so perfectly it manages to transcend that time period and becomes an all-time classic. A movie where the marriage of character and actor is so impeccable it's hard to imagine anyone else assaying the role. A confluence of events that creates a film where everything, from casting to music to script to direction, just works. Dirty Harry, released in 1971, was one of the highest grossing movies of the year and one of Eastwood's best movies ever. It created an iconic character and gave Eastwood the breakout role that he needed. In 2012, it was selected for inclusion in the National Film Registry for being a film of cultural and historical importance. But lest we forget its most important feature, it's as cool as hell. The story essentially takes on the real-life Zodiac killer story and adapts it for the screen in a fictitious manner. In the film, Harry Callahan, homicide detective for the San Francisco Bay Area, is assigned to track down Scorpio, a deranged killer who's been murdering people with a high-powered sniper rifle. Scorpio is thrilled by the idea of killing and demands the city pay him a considerable amount of money to stop. Callahan knows that no amount of money will be enough to stop him, given the sheer thrill killing gives the man, and sets about tracking Scorpio down. Harry catches and tortures the man to give up his latest victim, a young girl he has raped and buried alive. Harry torches the information out of Scorpio, but the girl is found already dead. To add insult to injury, Scorpio is released as Harry's search of his apartment was without a warrant, and Scorpio again goes on a killing spree, kidnapping a bus full of schoolchildren. Harry, against orders, follows Scorpio and tracks him down to the docks where he shoots and kills the madman. Fed up and disenfranchised, Harry tosses his police badge into the sea. The first film in the series is easily the best, not only in the Dirty Harry cycle, but in the rogue cop subgenre. It scores over its many imitators, not only due to its sly sense of humour, but also due to the fact that the movie is about something. Tackling such weighty topics as the rights of the victim, the ineffectiveness of a system that protects the guilty more than those victims, and a man being forced to work in a world he no longer recognises thanks to changes in the law. As a film, it examines the landscape of America in the early 1970s through its two protagonists, men who may very well be flip sides of the same coin, and forces us as an audience to challenge our own beliefs, even as we cheer a man who kills as routinely as the villain. Harry is an anachronism. Much like Raylan Givens in Justified, he's a frontier cowboy in a world that has moved on from his black-and-white vision of justice, and the film asks us to wonder if law and justice are mutually exclusive. The film also poses the question, does the world still need men like Harry Callahan? Truly, a character like Harry, just like Frank Castle or Batman, would probably be reprehensible in real life. But for the audience, he's simply an avatar, the kind of person we long to be, as well as being a lightning rod for a greater question about civil liberties. A further question raised by the film is, is justice without law even justice at all? And what of the victims of crime? What are their rights? It's true that Harry isn't given much in the way of motivation, a nod to his wife being killed by a drunk driver, but he is a man with very little patience and a rigid code. As I alluded to earlier, he's a gunslinger, a man used to marching into town, cleaning up the bad guys and then leaving. But what, the movie posits, does he do when his black and white worldview is brought into the 20th century? 
That the movie even bothers to ask these questions, and crucially doesn't answer them, is notable. It's hard to imagine Commando, for example, asking its audience to wonder if the man they are rooting for is in fact part of the problem. Dirty Harry received a lot of criticism for its stance, but I think to get angry about it is to ignore that the film has quite an even-handed tone. The district attorney admits to Harry he doesn't want Scorpio on the streets any more than Harry does, even after he's just ripped a strip off Harry for his illegal search of Scorpio's flat and seizure of his weapon. And, as much as we may not like it, the DA is right. Had Harry got the necessary paperwork, Scorpio would have gone down for a number of years. So Harry is responsible for him being back on the streets so quickly. The judge who examines the case even sides with Harry, saying that his concern about the kidnapped girl may give the judge the opportunity to overlook the illegal entry. But the torture of Scorpio doesn't give them a leg to stand on. All these elements, a fur and balanced look at the system, tend to be ignored by the movie's critics, who simply see a man taking the law into his own hands and failing to judge the piece as a whole. There is also a political subtext that many have drawn from the film, in that the villain of the piece is a long-haired dropout with no meaningful job, who simply wants things handed to him, whilst Harry represents a more straight-laced viewpoint, although it's interesting to note Eastwood claims no such subtext was intended. He's either being very obtuse or proving that, once again, the last person to ask what the art is about is the artist. If all of this is to suggest that Dirty Harry is somehow a worthy movie, perhaps even a little dull, it's to miss that this is a supremely well put together film. Whilst the questions it raises and its potent subtext are why I think the film has stood the test of time, and why it's elevated above more pulpy takes on the same material, such as Stallone's much inferior knockoff Cobra, let's not let it be forgotten that Dirty Harry is one of those rare beasts, an almost perfect movie. Eastwood has never been cooler than he is in this flick, squinting his way through the expert and laconic dialogue with the practised ease of a man comfortable in his own skin. Of his own ability, Eastwood has apparently said, I don't do talking well. I steer very well. And whilst it's true the Dirty Harry movies, especially as they go on, don't really offer much of an acting challenge for him, he's a much better actor than many give him credit for. The movie has a rich vein of dark humour running through it, from the iconic and justly famous Do You Feel Lucky scene, to Harry's deep intolerance of his superiors, particularly the feckless Murr, played as almost completely inept by a wonderful John Vernon. Harry is played up as disliking everyone, something Harry allows people to think about him, but the truth is that he's actually quite tolerant of everybody and to liberate the law, and even then he's only really interested in criminals who commit serious crimes and endanger others. He's kind of a nicer version of Judge Dredd. Harry is clearly a man with a carefully cultivated image that, that may or may not be his real persona, but despite the casual derogatory dialogue, Harry is no bigot, proved by his sly wink to DiGiorgio, played by Robert Mitchum's brother John, after he states he hates Mexicans, after being given a Mexican partner, to his reaction to the young African-American kid who Scorpio kills. Some of the lines, every dirty job that comes along, and, my, that's a big one, and... When a naked man is chasing a woman through an alley with intent to rape, I shoot the bastard, that's my policy, are genuinely amusing, and delivered as such. There's even a few in-jokes, such as play Misty for me playing at the cinema across the street during the Do I Feel Lucky scene. Lalo Schifrin's score is a high point, complementing the film and giving it an earthy feel, thankfully free of any 70s wah-wah pedal. 
Eastwood is surrounded by a stellar supporting cast, but no one quite makes the impression that Andy Robinson, later to play Garrick in Deep Space Nine, does as Scorpio. If a protagonist is only as good as his antagonist, then Dirty Harry is a very good protagonist. As Scorpio, Robinson is utterly insane, a pretty boy who loves killing because he can. No attempt is made to make Scorpio relatable to the audience. He's a sicko, pure and simple, and seems in many ways to be the forerunner of many an interpretation of the Joker. Director Seagal plays off the idea that Harry and Scorpio are flip sides of the same coin, mirror images of each other at numerous points throughout the film, both visually, when they are literally mirrored reflections of each other in the bus scene at the end, and in dialogue, such as when Harry says Scorpio kills because he likes it. Contrast this with the perverse glee Harry himself displays when he tells the mur he shot an attempted rapist for chasing a girl through an alley with a butcher's knife and a hard-on. By the climax, Harry is no longer enjoying it, though, something that speaks to the point of the film, and he takes no particular joy in killing Scorpio. Harry is disillusioned and disenfranchised by the end, after Scorpio uses the media to manipulate his story by bleating that Callahan beat him, and the Mur acquiesces once again to pay Scorpio after he kidnaps a busload of children. After Scorpio raped and murdered a 14-year-old girl and shot a 10-year-old in the face, the system still wants to give in to his every demand, yet Callahan is the one castigated by the media. The questions raised were remarkably prescient, and these morally grey areas elevate Dirty Harry above its many imitators. The film was, and still is, hugely influential. The chase from phone booth to phone booth was ripped off for everything from Starsky and Hutch to TJ Hooker, whilst the scene with the suicide jumper was stolen for lethal weapon. These imitators only prove one thing. Martin Riggs is no Harry Callahan, and Marion Cabretti isn't fit to clean his shoes. Eminently quotable, tightly paced, and full of far too many great scenes to mention, from Harry's proclamation that if he tried to kill Scorpio, his brains would be splattered all over the floor, to exactly why he's called Dirty Harry, it's still a textbook example of how to make a pulpy crime thriller with a contemporary feel. Dirty Harry is hard to beat, even 40 years on. The success of the film led to a sequel, 1973's Magnum Force. Following the criticism of the first film that Harry was as bad as the people he hunted, the premise this time was to follow a group of vigilante cops that were more brutal than Harry, showing what real vigilantism was like. These vigilantes are offing crooks and gangland bosses who manage to finagle their way out of a conviction on a technicality thanks to some smart lawyers. Further exploring the ideas of the first film, that crooks often get an easy ride while simultaneously giving Harry an enemy who crosses that line, Magnum Force is a thoroughly entertaining entry into the series. The movie places Harry as someone who still supports the system, despite the fact that he hates it, and is not in favour of being judge, jury and executioner, which some might say contradicts the first film. There's very little difference between Harry and this death squad, something the movie knows that the audience know. As a sequel, it apes many of the more popular scenes from the first film, but does it differently enough that it doesn't feel like a retread. Eastwood is as cool in this entry as he is in the first instalment, be it breaking in a new partner, played by Robocop's Felton Perry, or preventing a hijacking by pretending to be a pilot, Eastwood is in command, purring down the dialogue to a minimum and saying more with a scowl than most actors manage with a full-page monologue. He's aided here by another stellar supporting cast with Tim Matheson, Robert Urich and David Soule as the vigilante cops and Hal Holbrook as the chief of police and ultimate villain of the piece. 
The movie manages to successfully bake its cake and scoff it down by establishing the vigilantes are only killing the scum of the earth and in this plays up the audience's satisfaction. But when Saul's character crosses a line and kills a fellow cop to keep his secret, Harry and the audience suddenly experience a change of heart. Whilst lacking the moral complexity of the first movie, Magnum Force still manages to address some important issues while still being a fun romp. Harry's statement that it doesn't matter if the lead starts flying, as long as the right people get shot, pretty much sets out the movie's stall. And this attitude meant that the film again came in for criticism. But while still being a quality 70s thriller, it's that rarity today. A major studio movie with a point to make. As usual, there's the requisite quotable dialogue. This is the one where Harry says, Man's got to know his limitations. And many memorable scenes. Harry actually does some actual detective work in this flick, as he pieces all the elements together to work out who the bad guys are. He isn't quite smart enough to work out that the Commissioner, Briggs, Hal Holbrook's character, is behind it all, which is something the audience worked out earlier on, when Briggs had a slip of the tongue and said, People are guilty until presumed and then he cuts himself off. The plot is nicely twisty, and Lauro Schifrin again provides a memorable score. If the film is more violent, more profane, and features more nudity than the first entry, then this just adds to its grimy 70s B-movie feel. Magnum Force isn't quite as good, clever, or provocative as the first movie, but that's because the first movie is an absolute classic, and this sequel, while still being an entertaining flick, is just an entertaining flick. You can't beat it for sheer fun, though. 1976's The Enforcer, the third film in the series, sees Harry reassigned to personnel after a new chief of police decides that Harry's Wild West brand of justice is costing the department money after his most recent escapade saw them sued for damages. Simultaneously, a group of people's revolutionaries are targeting weapons manufacturers, ostensibly for the people, but actually just thieves and murderers. When DiGiorgio, a returning John Mitchum, stumbles across one of the raids and is killed, Harry takes an interest. The social commentary this time centres more around the rights of women in the workplace, and to emphasise this, Harry is saddled with a new partner, Kate Moore, played by Cagney and Lacey's Tyne Daly. That's pretty much the only social commentary, though, as this entry feels a little tired and stale. Whereas Magnum Force tried to keep the scenes fresh while still capturing the tone of the first film, the Enforcer rehashes material from the first film with reckless abandon, with some moments being simple retreads of the earlier flick, not aided by having yet another inept Murr and Harry Gardino returning as Harry's much-put-upon boss. As such, the Enforcer is really held together by the actors, Eastwood commanding the screen as usual, and Daly captivating in a rather thankless role. Even the villain, Deveren Bookwalter, as the blonde, baby-faced leader of the revolutionaries, Bobby Maxwell, feels like a photocopy of Scorpio, but either due to the script, which doesn't give Bookwalter the same opportunity for manic glee as it gave Robinson, or that Maxwell has no real personality to speak of, he never makes an impression like the previous villains. For the first time, a dirty Harry film feels formulaic, so in lieu of a decent script, it is up to Eastwood and Daly and the action scenes to keep our attention. Fortunately, they are more than up to the task, as is Bradford Dillman as the new chief of police. Dillman is a hugely entertaining actor, and is a much better foil for Harry than the rather bland bad guys. 
The political machinations of women's rights are explored adequately, with more realising she's been used in a political game by the Murr rather than being promoted on her own merit, and she quickly realises that whilst Harry may be rough around the edges, he's honest and incorruptible, and she's the first woman in the series that feels like someone Harry would be attracted to. Eastwood and Daly's chemistry is one of the best things about this entry, and once again some of the dialogue is genuinely funny. Of course, Moore being Harry's partner and potential lover means she may as well have a target painted on her back. And thus, despite it being Moore who saves the Murr and Harry at the climax of the film, she's killed for her trouble. The ending is quite weak, despite being filmed at the very photogenic Alcatraz. And the fact we are denied a decent final confrontation between Harry and Maxwell, hell, a confrontation of any kind between the two, underscores the problems of the movie and that it's just not really interested in fleshing out the villains at this point. Jerry Fielding, who just scored the outlaw Josie Wales for Eastwood, steps in for Schifrin this time round and, perhaps at Eastwood's behest, delivers a jazz tinge score rather than a typical 70s soundtrack. And whilst it's not the best score in the series, it's far from the worst. Which, in many ways, sums up the film. By no means classic Callahan, it's an economical and efficient piece of 70s movie making and fun to watch, even if it won't really leave behind any lasting impression. 1983's Sudden Impact, fourth in the series, was also, despite its box office, the highest of the Dirty Harry films, easily the worst. A highly misogynistic film, Sudden Impact varies wildly in tone, from gritty cop drama to lowbrow comedy, with very little to recommend it. Even the normally dependable Eastwood seems to be sleepwalking through this one, and the to me your dog shit speech is laughably bad, with even Eastwood struggling to deliver it. He should have stuck to his I don't talk real well mantra for this one. The plot moves in fits and starts and centres upon Jennifer Spencer, played as blandly as ever by Eastwood's then-lover Sandra Locke, who is enacting violent revenge on the people responsible for her and her sister's rape. Once again, the writers are introducing the idea of Callahan playing off of a real vigilante in an effort to showcase the difference between him and real lawlessness, but it's not entirely successful this time around. For one, Spencer comes across as a psycho herself rather than a sympathetic figure, and so the audience doesn't really feel any empathy for her or her plight. Dealing with rape and its ramifications is a delicate issue, and perhaps an 80s Dirty Harry film wasn't the best place for such a topic to be broached. The plot judders wildly from one scene to the next, really demonstrating the smooth scripting of the earlier entries. There's the standard Harry escapades with clueless superiors, a wasted Bradford Dillman returning, and more encounters with feckless robbers supplanting the more subtle humour of the original. And it all feels a little samey, even before the first act ends, in which Harry is temporarily reassigned for insubordination, again once the plot finally kicks in, we're treated to lengthy scenes where very little happens, and it's an awfully long slog before the climax where Harry finally cuts loose. Once the plot finally kicks in, we're treated to lengthy scenes where very little happens, and it's an awful long slog before the climax before Harry finally cuts loose. There's one breathtaking image of Harry stood backlit on the pier at the end, and one of the most memorable lines in movie history. Go ahead, make my day. But the story meanders and the film drags. There is one exception. An excellent set piece where thugs who've gotten off on a technicality firebomb Harry's car with a Molotov cocktail. 
Harry careening through the streets whilst the back seat is on fire is well shot and directed, and a rare moment of excitement in a tepid and unremarkable movie, with even the final shootout having none of the tension of the first two movies, and even the Enforcer's climax being slightly better. The last scene is nicely ambiguous, however. The film, at the last hurdle, harkens back to the original with its discussion of justice versus the law, with Harry letting Jennifer off, leaving her to get on with her life. Whether this will enable her to stop having terrible nightmares or help her sister recover from the trauma of the rape is never mentioned. The film has a horribly dated score, which, ironically, makes it seem much older than the 70s flicks, and a farting and pissing dog isn't as funny as it sounds, and I like a good fart gag. The characters are thinly drawn, with Harry himself going through the same motions as the previous flicks. Locke is an uninteresting actress in everything I've ever seen her in, largely I admit other Eastwood movies, but a central role here exposes her limitations. Even before the rape, she isn't particularly likeable, and had that been the point, I may have gone with it. Turning her into a man-hating psycho, despite being morally questionable, could, in a better actress's hands, have been interesting, but Locke's dead, shark-like eyes and bland performance never make us cur for Jennifer. Perhaps Harry was a 70s character and concept, and should have stayed there, as moving him into the 80s doesn't quite work. The film at least tries to be more than biceps and bullets, but ends up falling far short of the earlier movies. The success of Sudden Impact meant that a fifth film was inevitable, even if Eastwood was clearly tiring of the role. The Deadpool came out in 1988, and things don't start promisingly, with another of Lalo Schifrin's most dated opening themes and a slow-mo opening credit sequence that just screams, 80s! It's odd that 70s films and television have a kind of retro charm nowadays, whilst the 80s just look horribly dated. Thankfully, once we get past the opening, the movie comes to life. There's a great scene where Callahan is targeted by the mob, his testimony having brought down a big mob lord that is both funny and typically Callahan. After this, we embark upon a movie that, like the first film in the series, has a point to make, in this case, violence in movies. It's an irony the filmmakers exploit to the hilt, from the exploration of horror films and their effects on audiences to the narcissism of the people involved. One of these, Jim Curry's rock star Johnny Squares, a piss-take of every pretentious strung-out rocker in history, is particularly effective, and Callahan, enjoying a better-than-usual relationship with his superiors, investigates. The movie then adds another level to its subtext, the role of the media, not only in relation to its reporting, but also in relation to how organisations like the police have had to learn how to use it to do their job. Of course, Callahan the dinosaur has no interest in kowtowing to the media, nor to the rampant political correctness rampaging through the police department, which has seen him saddled with an Asian-American partner, played by V's Evan Kim. As if Tyne Daly wasn't bad enough. Liam Neeson plays a despotic film director who is the red herring for the film's main bad guy, and, thanks to his terribly bad English accent, makes it sound like he's auditioning for Spinal Tap. Neeson is actually good value, sporting a ponytail and delusions that his cheap B-grade horror flicks are actually high art, a role he does actually seem to relish and get his teeth into. The real killer turns out to be an obsessed fan, shot for fanatics, see? Although there is some wish fulfilment for Eastwood when the killer bumps off a Pauline Kael-like movie critic, Kael being a constant critic of Eastwood throughout his career. The Deadpool, against all odds, is genuinely funny in places, in ways that Sudden Impact wasn't, particularly in a scene where Callahan puns a gun on two men who simply want his autograph. 
There are even a few nods to the first film from Callahan, essentially wearing the same clothes in the opening of this flick as he wore in the hot dog scene in Dirty Harry, plus references to Scorpio in the news clippings on him, and these are welcome. The other movies are quite episodic, so acknowledging continuity is a nice touch. There's also one truly magnificent set piece. It's hard to come up with a new wrinkle on a car chase set in San Francisco, but Harry and his partner being pursued by a remote control car is quite brilliant, and one of the rare moments the film is elevated to the level of the first two sequels. Thankfully, we have spurred Chandra Locke this time out, but Guns N' Roses are here proving that as actors, they make pretty good musicians. The movie culminates in the killer, No Mark, who once again pales in comparison to Andrew Robinson in the first film, kidnapping Harry's journalist friend. This is presumably the role Locke would have played were she and Eastwood still a going concern. Here, the role is taken by Patricia Clarkson, a much better actress, so he has spurred another of Locke's insipid and lacklustre performances. Buddy Van Horn's direction is serviceable, if unremarkable, and the final moments reprise Schrifferin's theme from the first film to good effect. The film also benefits from being a tight 90 minutes long, rather than suffering the bloat of some movies with pretensions of being more than just pulp fun. The Deadpool, like Magnum Force, isn't classic Callahan, but it's a step ahead of sudden impact, and remains an enjoyable viewing experience. In at least attempting to say something, it harkens back to the earlier movies, and whilst it's a little toothless in comparison, let's be honest, violence in movies is an easy target, it closes the series out on, if not a high note, then at least not a disappointment. Customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet... One of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander. The journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. We've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. <laughs> Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. I hope you enjoyed that look at the Dirty Harry films. I've got a couple of emails that I want to discuss that came in on the back of uh, the uh, the Top Telly Tunes episode that I did a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago. That one seems to have gone down quite well, which is nice. Uh, Jason Trainer emailed in. Hello, and this is Jason. Interesting to hear you talk about TV theme songs, which along with video game music is a rather underrated art form, though man, you can find boatloads of remixes of them on YouTube. Great picks of songs, and it really is a shame that many shows like these now. Not sure what I'd pick on a list, but it'd likely have some Cayman Rider or Super Sentai tunes, as well as ones for the Transformers, amongst others, which really should not surprise anyone at all. 
One show I would really love to hear you talk about on the palace is Batman the Brave and the Bold. Well, here are on Hey Kids Comics, as this was a great show with a great tie into the comic. Um, Brave and the Bold's possibility, I've thought about doing some animation on this show. I've not quite thought what that, what form that will take. It's just in its uh, gestation period at the moment, but I've certainly thought about covering animation. Thank you, Jason. So that's a good suggestion. Whether you whether you want a commentary on Brave and the Bold, or you want me to talk about the, the series as a whole, I don't know. I've not decided. You'd have to let me know what exactly you wanted. Professor Allen has emailed in. Speaking of Professor Allen, he's just sent me a comic. I've got a comic here from Professor Allen. It's a Book Rogers comic, and it cost him 25 cents, so it fits into his uh, quarter bin podcast, where he, he picks up a cheap comic and talks about it. Unfortunately, it cost him considerably more than that to actually send it to me. But we uh, thank you, Professor Allen. That, that comic was there. Anyway, he's talking about uh, the TV themes episode again. Andy, I love the TV themes episode. Great choices, except for one glaring omission. But we'll get to that shortly. As soon as you mentioned the concept for this show, two things jumped into my mind. Rockhood Files and The Equalizer. Knowing your tastes and knowing how excellent these themes are, it was no surprise that they were in your list. But I confess, I was getting a little nervous as it was nearing its end. With only two left... Well, only one, really. We all knew what number one would be. It crossed my mind for a few seconds that you would leave out the equaliser. And then you started describing the grimy 1980s New York portrayed in the opening, and I pumped my fist. I would have pumped both, but I was driving. You definitely had some great selections here. I did not watch much Simon and Simon, but that sounded like a terrific TV theme. Which brings us to... I don't know that I've heard you discuss the X-Files at all, and I'm curious what you thought of that show, and more to the point, why that terrifically ominous atmospheric tone-setting theme did not make the list, other than that great episode. Well, thank you very much, Professor Allen. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Uh, first of all, something I don't think that I made terribly clear in the episode is when I was doing the original long list for that show, it was... You know, Battlestar Galactica and Butt Rogers in the 25th Century and, and all the, the ones that you would expect that I would pick. The Flash, the Lonely Man theme from The Incredible Hulk. And I realised that what I was doing with it was something that, that I have railed against uh, on Hey Kids Comics about when people do the greatest Batman stories or the greatest Superman stories ever told. And they're always the same. They're always the Long Halloween, Batman Year One, Arkham Asylum, Dark Knight Returns, or whatever happened to The Man of Tomorrow and For the Man Who Had Everything and Superman for All Seasons and all of that stuff. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want it to be that predictable. So I tossed that list away. And I basically just put my iPod on shuffle and went, oh yeah, that one, oh yeah, that one, oh yeah, that one. And that's how the list came to be. I mean, yes, like you pointed out, everyone who knows me probably knew what number one was going to be. But I can't imagine that anybody would have predicted that 30-something would be on the list. So I didn't. Wa I wanted that one to be more eclectic. Um, I am working on a sequel, which will just be science fiction and genre shows, and that one will probably be a little bit more predictable. Um, whether the X-Files makes that list is obviously uh, still up in the air. But the, the another thing about the show, the, the, top telly, the top telly theme tunes one, was I wanted it to be pieces of music that I felt worked independently of the show and were good pieces of music in their own right. That they were written for a television show and in many cases perfectly complemented that television show was irrelevant. I wanted them to be good pieces of music. And X-Files is one of those that I don't, I don't think works 
as a piece of music in its own right. It works for that show, accompanied with those visuals and setting up the tone of what you are about to watch. But I don't, I, I, I wouldn't have that on my iPod as a tune to listen to. And that was ultimately the point of, of top telly tunes. Tunes that I thought were good pieces of music, irrespective of whether they were accompanying a television show. As to the X-Files, generally, I quite like the X-Files. Um, I, I, I never, ever thought that it looked cinematic, which is something a lot of people said in the early days. It always looked to me like it was shot in Canada, which, of course, it was. And the, I have a certain problem with... I like the first four or five years more than I like the rest, but that's largely because it's one of those rare instances where I don't divorce the behind-the-scenes shenanigans from what the show put up. Um, uh, I still think David Duchovny is a bit of an arrogant asshole for getting the show moved to LA from Canada because A, that did affect the look and tone of the show the show never looked, the show, the X-Files was better when it was murky, when it was shot in Canada and it was also better cast when they were in Canada because Canadian actors look like real people um, by the time you get to LA everyone looks like a supermodel, so I, I think the show lost something then when it moved to LA, but also Duchovny's ego and arrogance that he got all those Canadian production people put out of business because he wanted the show to be filmed in LA. So for one man, the entire show was upheaved and people lost their jobs. And he repaid them by leaving the show two seasons later anyway. So, you know, so the, some of the behind the scenes shenanigans occasionally casts a pearl over the X Files. Uh, but thank you for emailing in. Very much appreciated. Mark Lax emailed in. Hello, Andrew. You could not have picked a topic closer to my heart than TV themes. I would rather listen to theme songs than almost anything else. To me, they're very nostalgic and make me think of better times when I was a kid. Almost all your choices were fantastic. I grooved along to Rock for Files, got jazzed up with Magnum and ruled with the A-Team. Of course, I had the 45-inch record of Believe It or Not, a fun show that never reached the popular status of its theme. I noticed you didn't play any themes to sitcoms, which here in the US were some of the most popular. I'm not sure if you're familiar with The Jeffersons, Maud, Happy Days, All in the Family, The Love Boat, etc. When I was a kid, they were my favourite parts of the show, especially the more mediocre shows. Um, just busting into Mark's email, I, I liked Happy Days. I've never seen any of those other shows that he mentions. I too loathe 30-something, continues Mark, dubbing the show from its exception today as 30-dumb-thing. I prayed to the heavens I would not end up like that when I hit my 30s and moderately succeeded. TV theme is something that may never return, but I'll always have those memories, especially knowing I can go to YouTube and find most of them as well as buy some. I absolutely love the beautiful serenade that you and your daughter did. <laughs> I don't know that it was beautiful, Mark, but I appreciate that. As I write this, we're having a raging blizzard here in New England, and that was a nice warm gift. Thanks again for your podcast, your friend Mark Lax. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Very much appreciated. Uh, Chris Franklin also emailed in about the television theme tunes episode. Uh, Chris says, you brought back some nice memories. I'd forgotten how much I liked the theme to Simon and Simon. And when I heard the theme to The Greatest American Hero, I could vividly recall listening to that single 45-inch record whilst flailing around the house with a towel around my head. Some of the British themes were new to me, but that's to be expected. Of course, I knew Danger Man from Hey Kids, and although I knew Erwolf, I now think of that running gag on the Fantastic Cast more than the theme to that show. Thanks for breaking up a very monotonous and cold Monday morning. The heater was busted. <laughs> well, again, you're very welcome, Chris. Luke Giaconetti also emailed in. Come over here and listen to the television. <laughs> I do like Luke's uh, email 
titles. Andy, listen to your top TV themes episode of Palace on the Way Back Home from Alabama. Needless to say, your selection of various tyre-squealing anthems was much appreciated as I was cruising down the highway. And of course, the legendary Airwolf theme is always welcome on the road. I appreciated your choices, even if some of them were shows I have no experience with. I will give some additional thoughts. One of the best TV themes, which is a newly created pop song, as opposed to an existing pop song, is Friends. The Rembrandt's I'll Be There For You is instantly recognisable as the Friends theme and sets the tone of the series wonderfully, with the high-energy power pop being juxtaposed with the typically 90s bleak chic woe-is-me angst. Your life's a joke, you're broke, your love life's D.O.A. Seems like you're always stuck in second gear when it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, or even your year. Even as a music video, it's a heavy rotation on MTV. Uh, I mentioned friends I did mention I'll be there for you I did say that uh, I make no apologies for thinking that that is as you say uh, a lovely little slice of pure power pop and um, even after you know the show's been off the earth for 10 years but it's still in heavy rerun rotation I'm still not bored of that I still like that song sorry on the other side of the pop song coin continues Luke reusing a pre-existing song one of the best is Love Spit Love's cover of How Soon Is Now by The Smiths used on witchy fantasy adventure show Charmed it's my wife's favourite TV show so I have seen the entire series a couple of times and the theme is always a treat to hear but the use of How Soon Is Now is creative on several levels First off, the cover was originally featured in the teeny witch movie The Craft, so it was associated with the genre already. Secondly, the way the song is cut into the intro makes good use of the homophones to change the lyrical meaning of the song. The original line of I am the sun and the er instead becomes parsed as I am the sun and the er, substantially more appropriate for a show about a coven of good witches. The classic line of I am human and I need to be loved just like everybody else does speaks to the often soap opera-like relationships the sisters go through in the series as their normal lives repeatedly are intruded on by the supernatural. And amusingly, one of the sisters owns and operates a nightclub, so there's a club if you want to go has a nice resonance. Um, do you know, I didn't even consider that one, but it, uh, yeah, Love Spit Love's cover of How Soon Is Now is pretty good. I mean... The original by the Smiths is one of my all-time favourite songs. So you'd think I wouldn't like the cover, but no, Love Spit Love's version's good. And The Craft. I really enjoy The Craft, because I think Feruza Balak, whatever her name was, I think she'd have made a brilliant joker, even though she's a girl. Although that doesn't seem to matter anymore, does it? So, uh, Luke continues, instrumental themes are still my favourites, and besides some of the ones you featured or mentioned, I've loved the Munsters theme since I was a little kid, few others stand out to me. Unfortunately, short-lived court drama Murder One had a wonderful theme full of bass and sounding suitably important. The classic theme to Dallas is another one, sweeping, grand, modern, and with echoes of more traditional Western themes all at once. It's telling that when Dallas was brought back by TNT a few years back, the theme song was reused with no discernible changes. In all honesty, I almost considered Dallas. I didn't. I don't know. Well, I was going to say I couldn't stand Dallas, but that's not strictly true. I remember so many plots from that show when they show clips and retrospectives and stuff. But I didn't. I don't ever remember watching it. But I know my nan watched it, so I can only assume that I was absorbing it by osmosis. But yeah, the the theme is, and it is very western. You know, I'd never really twigged that before until you mentioned it. But it does it does feel very big and epic and John Ford the theme to Dallas. Luke continues, in Japan, the business of TV theme songs is a serious one, especially for anime and tokusatsu, or live-action special effects shows. Typically, a show will have a separate opening and ending theme with lyrics. Individual characters and vehicles will often have their own themes as well. 
often with lyrics. These will typically all be collected onto a soundtrack album, so if you want the full selection of tunes used on, say, Kamen Rider Wizard, you're good to go. Some of my favourite Japanese themes include the opening to Kamen Rider Black XRX, a driving pulsing theme suitable for a hero who drives a motorcycle, the opening to Rescue Sentai GoGo 5, these are fantastic titles, an adventurous theme with bright horns, infusing the listener with the series' thematic elements of rescuing those in peril and fighting disasters both natural and otherwise. That sounds very like Thunderbirds. GoGo 5 features a theme song for one of the giant robots, Grand Liner. I'm sure you and uh, Jason Tread are in league here, just to get me to mention all these things. Luke concludes its theme features great use of a drum machine to simulate the clacking of a train over the tracks, blurring horns to suggest a train's horn, and soaring vocals appropriate for this massive robot. There's plenty more, but I'll leave it at that. I'm off to grab a copy of that herbal theme that you presented. Thanks, Luke. Why don't you do an episode, Luke, of Earth Destruction Directive? about Japanese themes. Because I'd listen to that. I think that uh, that would be quite interesting. Uh, the final email came from Chuck Rodriguez, also about the Top Teletunes episode. He also said, I too am a lover of good television theme songs and missed the day when hearing a familiar theme would get you excited for your favourite TV show. Years ago, when cassette tapes were still a thing, I purchased a series called Television's Greatest Hits, which would feature classic themes from the 50s to the 90s. They ranged from cartoons to dramas to sci-fi to sitcom. They even did a few releases dedicated solely to commercials. I would use these to create my own chronological mixtape of TV themes. To this day, I will still play these tapes for a wonderful nostalgia tip to my television childhood. I believe the CD versions can be found on Amazon. Thanks for reminding me I'm not alone in my total love of a good theme song and thanks for keeping the nostalgia of my childhood alive with your show Chuck Rodriguez well absolutely no problem at all Chuck I'm glad that that one went down well as uh, I very much enjoyed recording that episode it was uh, a lot of fun Uh, before we finish Tonight, over the last few weeks, momentum has been gathering over the release of the new Fantastic Four movie from director Josh Trank. With the FF rights being held, like those of the X-Men, by Fox, this isn't a Marvel movie, at least not in the sense that the Iron Man, Hulk, Captain America and Avengers movies are. And to be honest, I think it shows... Nothing I heard about the film leading up to the release of the trailer made it sound appealing to me, and having watched it a few times, I'm just as not interested. This isn't fanboy nerd rage, I'm not frothing at the mouth over this trailer or movie and cursing the heavens. If this looks like something that would appeal to you, then, you know, go with my blessing and watch it by all means, but to me it just looked bland. The overwhelming feeling I had upon watching it was that I would have to have tried really, really hard to just be apathetic. However, when a new FF flick is announced, conversation always turns to the 1994 film made by Roger Corman Productions and directed by Olaf Sasson. The movie was gaining a lot of traction in the autumn of 1993, with Cine Fantastique, Volume 24, Issues 3 and 4 from October 1993, devoting a four-page full-colour article to the flick. If you, lovely listener, don't recall this film, however, it's not that senility is settling in. It said it was never released. Now, it's not that the film was never made. It was. It's completely finished and available for viewing on bootleg DVDs and old videotapes, all for free on YouTube. It simply wasn't released. 
The story goes that German producer Bernd Eitinger optioned the rights to make an FF movie but could not secure the amount needed, an estimated $40 million. With time at a premium, he contacted Roger Corman, noted low-budget movie-making maestro, and told him that if he did not start filming by December 30th, the rights would be lost and all the development time and money he'd put into the film would be wasted. According to the aforementioned issue of Cine Fantastique, Corman slashed the budget to $4 million, a 90% budget cut, and got to work. Actors were before the cameras on December 28th for a three-week shoot. Optic Nerve would provide the SFX, and the script by Craig Nevius and Kevin Rock was already in place. Later articles, particularly one on the www.tico170.com FF movie website, has Corman state the budget was actually $1.4 million. But, to put either figure into perspective, the pilot episode of The Flash TV show, made in 1990, had an estimated $6 million budget, whilst Tim Burton's Batman cost $48 million. To say making a $40 million movie on a $4 million or $1.4 million budget would be challenging would be like saying the Grand Canyon is a small hole in the ground. So, with interest in the FF at an all-time high, despite the cancellation of the comic book, I thought I'd seek this out and watch it. In these digital times, that was as simple as searching for it on YouTube and then beaming that to my telly box from my phone, which I did very recently. The story has a lot going on and feels very much like a 70s or 80s comic book as it jumps from short scene to short scene, crisscrossing its plot lines and generally leaping around like a hyperactive child on a sugar high. Whilst this may work on a comic book page, it has the effect of giving the viewer whiplash. The script covers Reed and Ben's college days and the supposed death of their friend and lab partner, Victor Von Doom, the origins of the Fantastic Four and Doctor Doom, the first meeting of Ben and Alicia Masters, a new villain, the jeweller, a thinly veiled take on the Mole Man, his quest to find a wife which leads him to kidnap Alicia, and Doom's return from the dead and his final confrontation with the Fantastic Four. First, the good. The cast, Alex Hyde-White as Reed Richards, Rebecca Starb as Sue Storm, Jay Underwood as Johnny Storm and Michael Bailey-Smith as Ben Grimm are clearly giving their all. Every one of them looks like they are having the time of their life playing a superhero and they all are trying to elevate the material as best they can given that all of them knew they were clearly working on a shoestring budget. Starb, I would argue, is actually much better casting than any of the subsequent live-action Sue Richards we've been given so far. Joseph Culp, Robert's son, is also much better as Doctor Doom than he has any right to be, and buries Julian McMahon's performance in the Tim Story flicks. Whilst he is undeniably campy and over-the-top, he is gloriously campy and over-the-top, and as with the actors playing the Fantastic Four, he's well aware of the tone and the movie he's making. Script-wise, there's a lot of ground to cover, and he does it moderately well. Reed and Ben's college days with Victor are well handled, and young Sue's crush on Reed is sensitively handled, with her being besotted by him and him being completely oblivious to her, something that works tremendously given the age gap. One thing I did find amusing was that young Sue is played by Mercedes McNabb, who would go on to play Harmony in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its sequel Angel. The rocket ship launch is also updated in the script, with it being a sanctioned liftoff rather than Reed stealing it. How he manages to convince the powers that be to let his girlfriend and her brother on the ship is glossed over, but it was in the comics, so one can argue fidelity to the source on that score.
The Thing costume, not worn by Smith, but in actuality stuntman Carl Ciafalio, who was cast before Smith, is not too bad either, with Optic Nerve working at a loss on the film simply because they were fans of the comics. In the bad corner, we have the jeweller subplot and his campy henchmen and his desire to find a bride, the blind sculptress Alicia Masters. It's not that the actors, Ian Trigger and Cat Green respectively, are bad. It's just that Alicia's plot is rushed and the jeweller gets in the way of the real story, that of the FF and Doom. It also doesn't help that the movie feels slightly plodding, despite being only 90 minutes, and cutting a lot of the jeweller scenes would have tightened the flick up to a faster 75 minutes or so, something that would have helped immeasurably. The score, while it's not been bad, is also very intrusive in places and achingly familiar, feeling like it wants to launch into Jurassic Park at any moment. Some scenes are too long, some are too short, and there is a terrible moment in the middle of the film where Reed spells out why the foursome got the powers they did for people who are too stupid to get subtext. There's also the feeling that the henchmen of both Doom and the Jeweler are auditioning for a Broadway play, given how choreographed the moves are. All told, though, this was nowhere near as ugly as I thought it was going to be, with the caveat that it's not particularly good either. It's much better than the Justice League or the Generation X TV movies, but that's not really a glowing endorsement. Hyde White and Bailey Smith genuinely thought this would be a decent film for kids and comic fans who wanted to see these characters on screen and tore the hell out of it before Avi Arad bought the negatives and all the prints of the flick and buried them in a deep, dark hole, never to secure an official release. None of the people involved in it are embarrassed by it to their credit, and all of them are willing to talk about it in interviews, probably because they've all gone on to have pretty solid, if not spectacular, careers afterwards, with Culp being particularly proud of the fact that he is the first live-action Doctor Doom. He's even volunteered to redub all of his dialogue for free, should the movie ever get an official release, as he absolutely hates the finished soundtrack. All of the cast are aware of the flick's limitations, the costumes come in for a particular drubbing, but all of them think, with a bit more money and care, they could have been making something special. To be fair, they weren't, but it does deserve credit for at least attempting to play it straight, while still being fun, and does show the benefit of casting actors who are hungry against casting slumming actors in need of a paycheck. That about wraps it up for this week's episode of... I don't do them weekly, do I? So I never know what I'm talking about when I say stuff like that. Thank you, everybody who emailed in. It was very much appreciated. I still can be contacted on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com on this particular show. So you can drop me a line to let me know what you thought of what I thought of the Dirty Harry flicks or any of the other things that we've discussed over the past few weeks. I have no idea what the next episode will be about, but I'm in the middle of writing an episode about Blake 7. Maybe that'll be next. Who knows? See you next time. Thank you for joining me. Bye-bye.